Indie Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. Indie Votes fosters conscientious engagement in political and civic life among students. In partnership with Indie Student Media, Indie Votes would like to introduce a new podcast, Pizza, Pod, and Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, The Pop in Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to educate students about the voting process, different political issues from a nonpartisan lens, and mobilize students to turn out to vote. Hello, everyone. This is Rachel Subnani, one of the ND Votes co-chairs for this historic 2020 to 2021 school year. I'm a senior at the University of Notre Dame, studying science pre-professional studies with minors in constitutional studies and science, technology, and values. And I'm Adair Malinsky, the social media chair of ND Votes. I'm a junior from Cincinnati, Ohio, studying economics with a minor in the Hesburgh Program of Public Service. Today, we would like to welcome you to our third episode of Pizza Pop Pod and Politics, the post-election recap. We have the honor and privilege of speaking with Professor Christina Wilbrecht today. Professor Wilbrecht is a professor of political science, director of the Rooney Center for the Study of American Democracy, and director of the Notre Dame-Washington program. She recently co-authored a book entitled A Century of Votes for Women, American Election Since Suffrage, which examines how women voted across the first 100 years since the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Professor Wilbrecht also is the co-author of Counting Women's Ballots, Female Voters from Suffrage Through the New Deal, and the author of The Politics of Women's Rights, both of which were recognized with National Book Awards. Professor Wilbert has authored or co-authored articles on such topics as women as political role models, the representation of women, and partisan position-taking on education policy. She is co-editor of the journal Politics and Gender, and she has long been a supporter of ND Votes, so we are super excited to get to debrief the 2020 presidential election with her today. Welcome, Professor Wilbert. Thank you. I love talking politics with ND Votes. To give an election update where we stand right now, according to the New York Times, Joe Biden has won 290 electoral votes to President Trump's 217, with North Carolina and Georgia remaining to be called and recounts occurring in many states. In the Senate race, two Democrats flipped seats for a total of 48. One Republican flipped a seat for a total of 50 seats. The remaining two seats will be decided by a runoff election in Georgia on January 5th. In the House, the Republicans flipped nine seats to the Democrats, three for a 218 to 202 Democratic majority with 15 races remaining to be counted. I feel like we need to say that it's November 13th because things change so much every day. So just for context, it's <laughs> Absolutely. the 13th. At the moment, right, right now. <laughs> So 2020 has been unprecedented in a myriad of ways, as we all know, and the presidential election has been no exception. Professor Wilbrecht, what were your expectations for this year's election and what was unprecedented or unique about it and what wasn't? I, I, this we we call a lot of elections historic. This one definitely um, earns that moniker. Um, I, I think we went into it with a lot of uncertainty. Um, uh, even... Uh, before uh, COVID happened, this was going to look like a really historic, unique election. But we've never run a national presidential election during a pandemic in exactly the same way. We've obviously had earlier pandemics and elections, but 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 not a presidential level uh, presidential election on this level. And so going into it, I had lots of questions about would people be able to access ballots? Would it be safe? Um, would uh, would they have to wait too long? Um, and then there's been lots of questions about election security, um, about the sort of contention we're having right now over which votes count and how to count them. Uh, 
So I think that sort of level of this is also different made it more difficult than usual to sort of predict what was going to happen and what the outcomes were going to look like. Can I ask what were your personal experiences just voting? Like how did you vote this year? Um, yeah. So I am a, um, I believe very strongly and I, and I know as a social scientist that, you know, one of the functions of elections is it's sort of a ritual of democracy. Um, it's a time in which we sort of affirm that I'm a citizen. I have a voice. I'm in a democratic system. We choose our, our leaders, right? Um, and, and we know that that's a lot of what's behind um, why people uh, actually turn out to vote. And so I have always been a first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. You go, you you know, the, the whole sort of thing. This year, however, I did actually go downtown, uh, the city-county building, uh, and vote a little bit early. Um, not so much because I was worried about lines at my own polling place, although my the polling place I've been going to for 20 years has been moved. It I used to be just blocks from my house. Now it's a little bit farther. Um, but my understanding is that um, it would be better for the system if people who could go early did, and so there weren't lines on that day. Now, of course, my husband went the day of and like walked in and walked out, and I'm a little bitter about it, but it's fine. Um, my parents voted early as well, I think for similar reasons. Um, but overall, how do you think that, there were obviously like a lot of differences, but how do you think this election compared to the 2016 election? So I think there's a lot of things to say about that. I think we went into this election um, with a lot of um, concern about some of the issues that had happened in 2016, electoral infer- interference, um, questions about long lines, all those sorts of things. And and part of what we're seeing, I think, is um, what is sometimes referred to as the paradox of preparation, uh, that we, we did so much to get ready that the truth is there were very few problems um, with this election. And, um, you know, election uh, experts are saying it looks like, you know, probably the most safe and secure election we've had in a really long time. Um, uh, and that's really because people, you know, volunteered to be election workers. There was a lot of attention to this. Um, in some states, there was investment in these in the electoral system, et cetera. And so the irony is all of that preparation means things went incredibly smoothly. And it looks like all those fears about violence, et cetera, et cetera, really didn't come um, to pass. We can think about 2016 in other ways. Um, uh, for the most part, voting patterns look pretty similar from 2016, in part because 2016 didn't look that different from 2012. Um, one of the remarkable things about 2016, and, and it increasingly looks like 20 as well, is despite how very historic 16 was, the first woman nominee, uh, a presidential candidate who never held political office or uh, served in the military, on election day, Republicans turned out and voted for Republicans, and Democrats turned out and voted for Democrats. So there is movement, and I'm happy to talk about that. Um, But we're in a period of really unusual politics, but really strong partisanship. Um, And and so that has sort of odd consequences for how our elections turn out. Yeah, absolutely. My next question was just about the overall voter turnout numbers. We've been hearing that, um, you know, an unprecedented number of people turned out to vote. Um, You know, the presidential candidates are boasting the most people have ever voted for them. Um, would you expect this to continue in the future? Or do you think this was very specific to 2020 and the issues that are plaguing us at the moment? So it's certainly a combination, um, sort of similar to the paradox of, of, 
of preparation, I'm, I'm sort of intrigued by this idea that, um, well, let me back up a little bit and say, from a political science point of view, it's sort of surprising anybody votes at all, right? From a purely cost-benefit uh, factor, the likelihood you're going to change the outcome of election um, means that even little small costs, oh, it's raining, oh, I don't have time to vote on my way back from work or whatever it might be, are going to outweigh whatever vague benefits that probably don't depend upon you. And so we know that the reason that people do vote often has more to do with sort of um, their sense of duty, but also the ways in which they're mobilized. And one of the things we absolutely saw this election cycle is as all this concern came up about access to voting and all of these new restrictions, we're going to get rid of polling places, we're going to require two forms of ID, we're going to do all these things, meant that organizations really put a lot of resources, time and energy into voter mobilization. And those things matter, uh, especially in these states where elections were close. Let me say at least two things about that, however. One is, um, and I promise I'll answer the question about in the future, one is that um, the irony of this, however, is that to the extent that civil rights groups and other organizations really have to invest their resources into mobilizing voters and defending very basic voting rights, that's time and energy they're not putting into other activities, other lobbying, other issues that they could be working on. And so it's, it's in some ways a real distraction to have to continually fight uh, for voting rights. Um, as important as those groups are, I think it's also important to um, note that this is more or less possible under different conditions, and this gets to the question of how long is this going to last. So Georgia, which has seen incredible turnout and has been an important uh, state for Biden, also changed their registration rules, right, and, and automatic registration and made everything easier. Um, those sorts of, of structural changes are, I think, going to be really key to keeping up this level of engagement going forward. Do you see other states like um, introducing similar reforms as Georgia, or is that kind of a one-time thing, or is that a movement that's happening broadly? Well, unfortunately, more of the movement's actually been in the other way. So when the Supreme Court decided in Shelby uh, Township versus Holder, in I believe 2013, that the that there was no longer a role for the Justice Department in reviewing states' plans um, for for voting. Um, this has opened up lots of opportunity for states to actually um, restrict access to ballots, right? And so this is limiting the number of drop-off places or polling places. This is voter ID laws. This is as we had here in Indiana a purge of voters with changed addresses, those sorts of things, all of which really sort of get in the way um, of voter turnout and we know are, are really effective. Um, so certainly there's been a counter mobilization and we are definitely seeing that in places. Um, it's certainly somewhere that uh, I think for those of us who care about democracy and widespread um, participation, hope that there's continued energy, right? Um, but that takes work, right? Every state legislature, this is the reality of, of um, American government, that it's the sort of administration of elections is all at the state and local level. Um, and, and so that takes a whole lot of work to work through 50 different state legislatures for those sorts of changes. Um, I had another brilliant point, but it has left my mind. But That is quite all right. That was <laughs> super comprehensive and interesting. Thank you. It's really interesting to see how uh, voting has changed. Just 
talking with our board members and other people in ND votes um, throughout different states, it's vastly different. Like I live in New Jersey and immediately starting with the primary, they sent every registered voter um, an absentee ballot. So I got mine like, I think it was in September. <laughs> so I voted uh, eons ago. <laughs> it seems like so much has happened. Um, and they are moving, to, but it's interesting, New Jersey doesn't really have early voting. Um, which is, you know, another thing to make voting more accessible that a lot of places would have and they don't. Um, and they also don't have tracking your ballot and um, online registration. It's all paper. Um, so they're pushing forward in some ways, but uh, quite not there yet. Um, I love this question and comment because it lets me remember my brilliant point. Um, and, and let me start by saying I grew up in Oregon where there have been all mail-in ballot for ever and ever. Um, uh, everyone thought we were weird 20 years ago, and we are. Um, but but it's become sort of standard. So you're exactly right. This sort of huge variation. Um, there's been a lot of talk this year, in part coming along with the uh, centennial of, of the 19th Amendment uh, granting women the right to vote, kind of, um, about a different kind of amendment that in the United States, the, the constitution, the original constitution says almost nothing about voting. It leaves everything to the States. Um, we've changed that with the 15th, 19th and 24th amendment having to do with race, uh, sex and, uh, age. But those amendments just prohibit discrimination on certain bases. So there's a lot of talk now about the idea that we actually need an amendment that that ensures an affirmative right to vote that says it is the state's responsibility to ensure that citizens can turn out and vote, right? Which would switch the entire sort of burden of proof and, and, and sort of effort. Um, think about in normal years, what happens with the U S census, right? The constitution says you got to count everybody. You send out stuff, you follow up, you dock on doors, right? The, the responsibility of the state to find everybody, not that they do that perfectly. And certainly not this year. Um, you know, voter registration, voter behavior could, could be more similar to that in the United States, whether or not there's going to be the political will to do that is of course a very different question. Yeah. Wow. That's a really interesting comparison. Um, so, with all this increase in absentee voting, um, do you think, like, what do you think voting will look like in, like, 2050? Do you think all states will move to a model like Oregon? Do you think they'll be ranked choice like Maine? Well, those are two different questions. But, yes, yeah. and both really interesting proposals. Um, it's it's interesting. There's There's where the states will go. And certainly, you know, the flip argument about federalism is that states are laboratories of democracy and that as one state sees that mail-in voting or something else works or doesn't work, that they're going to adopt those, those sorts of uh, programs. It depends, of course, on the incentives of uh, uh, the people writing the rules and deciding, sorry, if we're going to have mail-in voting, et cetera, right? So is it in their best interest that more people vote or is it in their best interest that fewer people vote? Um, uh, the parties sort of differ on that right now, but we see this in other places. For example, there's a good reason in a lot of states that there are elections for school board or what we'd call off-cycle elections. They happen separately because it turns out the school, the teachers unions want to have those uh, elections with low participation and people who know what they're doing sort of participate in them. Um, I swear I'm coming back to your point though. Um, before this election and the great focus on turnout and the, and, you know, all the different reasons that that happened, the truth is that the data on things like early voting was not entirely clear in the sense of, did it increase turnout? And you would think, oh, it's so flexible. Oh, you can do it. 
The problem with flexibility is that most people think, oh, I could vote at any time, so I'll do that tomorrow. Oh, I could vote at any time, I'll do that tomorrow. We know that voting is a social act, right? And I talked about it as sort of a ritual of a democracy. Well, a ritual is a collective action. And so one of the things we know that drives turnout on election day is everyone's wearing this sticker, right? In the morning, my spouse says to me, don't forget to vote on your way to work. And then I go to work and people are wearing the stickers, not in Indiana, but in other states, um, talking about the fact that they voted, all these things sort of prime me to do it. And without that, it's a, it's, it's, it's a little harder to sort of push up turnout. Now, the flip has been, um, this is maybe a place where social media might, might actually be helping democracy, right? Um, my social media was all full of people standing in line, saying they voted early, saying they did whatever. So it may be that we don't need to hear those messages just on election day anymore. Maybe early voting and absentee, there's going to be enough of a culture. And if there's anything I'd want to take out of 2020, that culture of voting is important and we should all do it is something I would like to see us keep. It's interesting how that culture kind of expanded into areas like it wasn't really before. Like there was LeBron James and Skylar Diggins with their huge new um, new voting push and even on campus Coach McGraw was super active in helping us at ND Votes mobilize the sports team. So that was kind of an interesting um, phenomenon to see. Absolutely. And the I Voted stickers. We can totally relate to that being um, a social pressure. We Not a lot of states give them out with absentee ballots. ballots. Some do. Um, but we actually, as ND Votes with student government, got... I voted stickers and handed them out on election day and people were thrilled. I love that. <laughs> I, I saw everyone that. wearing them around. <laughs> it was a really awesome thing to see um, how many people kind of engaged. And year. that's almost a tipping thing. At some point, everybody's doing it and you feel like, okay, well, I'm a, you know, what's wrong with me if I'm not sort of on this? And social pressure is a real thing. It's the way we all live our lives. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so my next question is, what surprised you most about the way different demographics groups voted? And do we even have like reliable data related to this yet? So I'm going to answer the second question first. Um, so we've heard a lot about the polls. And so I want to first start by talking about there are sort of these pre-election polls that are done publicly and they're published. Right. And there's been talk about how predictive they were. And that's an interesting question, and we can have that. But there are two other sorts of polls, and um, one that I would sort of focus on are what we would call sort of academic polls. These are not just call-ups from random people. These are done around every election. Some of the best ones take like two hours to do because they're so in detail, and we can look at voters over time. So if you're sitting in a political science class and you're learning about how people voted over time or what we know about partisanship, you probably got it from that sort of data. But the nature of that is that that's gathered right around the election and then there's vote verification with vote records and the data is all cleaned up and it's so massive. Scholars won't have that in hand until the spring, right? And so um, that's sort of good data to trust, but that by the time that comes out, the only people who still care are political scientists, right? The, we want an answer on day one. And so where we tend to get the answers on day one um, is that third sort of category, and those are exit polls. So since the early 1970s, a consortium of, it's changed over time, but a consortium of uh, press outlets, newspapers, major newspapers and major TV uh, uh, news stations um, have invested in an exit poll. And an exit poll is literally... Um, randomly sampling counties and then randomly sampling polling places across the United States and having people stand outside of them from early in the morning to late at night with clipboards and as people exit the polling places, asking them just real short, 
who did you vote for? What are the top two issues for you? Race, gender, you know, sort of some basic demographics. And, and the whole point of those, it's for the press. It's to come out really, really quickly. And we always know with those that we're sort of sacrificing speed for accuracy, but they're not bad. They're, they're, they're pretty good for, for what they are. And like all the other pollsters, we don't have to worry about the fact that people tend to say they're going to vote. And they really believe it, but they don't always, right? But if you do an exit poll, those are voters. You know that they voted, right? So I probably as I'm saying this, you're thinking, oh my God, how do you do that during a pandemic and when all these people are voting absentee, right? And so they're not dumb people. They change the way they interact outside of polling places. They left the, you know, the the clipboards for people to pick up themselves and sprayed them down and all that sort of fun stuff. And then they also called people. They called people who voted absentee, et cetera. That all said, the first data that was reported by the exit polls uh, by CNN within a day or two immediately raised all sorts of concerns. Like the, just the results were inconsistent with everything we'd seen in private polling and everything that we would sort of theoretically expect. So to give one example, um, in 2016, one of the places we did see movement is uh White college-educated women moved away from Donald Trump, and white women without a college education moved towards Donald Trump. Um, the initial exit said that those white women with a college degree were now more likely to vote for Trump than to vote for Biden in 2020. Um, they've already done one adjustment to the exits. That's no longer true. Their own data tells them that's not true anymore. But what it's meant is that there's a lot of confusion about sort of what we can believe no, we're running late on time. I'm going to give one more example because it's it's key to young people. So when they do likely voter models, trying to guess, um, one of the things they systematically know is that young people say they're going to vote, but more than other age groups, they don't actually follow through. And that's because there's more you know instability in their lives, et cetera. Um, I was just on the phone with one of these pollsters a couple of days ago, and he was saying they think maybe one of the biggest problems that are likely voter mo- models is that young people didn't weren't less likely to turn out this year that they said they were going to and they did um and so that's exciting going forward to think that um we're really finally seeing that sort of um increase among among youth voters the other way to say that is you guys screwed up all the polling (laughs) we're good at we're good at throwing wrenches in things (laughs) young people (laughs) that's um actually one other question we had you mentioned suburban um white women and they obviously received a lot of attention from both candidates leading up to the election. Um, I'm curious if your research has pointed to a reason for this or if they had like a heightened role in 2016 and 2020. I'm I'm, I'm sort of laughing because the answer is yes. Um, This idea of the suburban housewife or whatever Donald Trump, suburban women um, that President Trump talked about in tweets and other sorts of places is, is really an idea that's more than 200 years old. So, you know, at the timing of the founding, um, women were excluded from the vote because their relationship to politics was all by being wives and being mothers and raising good citizens and, and taking care of their husbands as they were political leaders. That idea does not die with women's suffrage, right? Um, and one of the things in, in the book that was mentioned in the intro that we talk about is how throughout the last hundred years, we repeatedly come back to this idea. How will women vote? Well, they'll vote as mothers. They'll vote as um, they don't want to send their husbands or their sons to war. They want good schools. They care about health care, all these sorts of things. Um, to me, the suburban woman isn't that different from the soccer mom or the security mom or the hockey mom or the waitress mom or any of these other sort of stereotypes about, about women. 
What's really dangerous about it, however, is that it's a really under unrepresentative stereotype. It always has been and it's only become more so. And so in, a, in an odd way, it matters less how women vote than how politicians and parties in the press think that they vote, right? So if you want to, if you think that getting women voters is attracting suburban women, there's certain kinds of policies and things you're going to push for. Um, and they're not going to be inclusive of older women, of poor women, of professional women, of, you know, every women of color, immigrant women, everyone who doesn't fit sort of that stereotype. It's of course also not true of the suburbs, which have become much more diverse places. Um, it looks like the suburbs ticked a little bit towards the Democratic Party as people expected. Um, it looks like the same sort of, it looks like actually women without a college education, white women without a college education ticked up towards Democrats as well. White women with a college education moved even more. Um, and I guess I'll just say one more thing about that. I think a lot of the attention to suburban women was a response to the activism we've seen for the last four years. The Women's March, Moms Demand Action, Me Too, you name it. Um, I think this is a good moment to point out that activists are not a random sample of the population. And we should be very careful about looking at activist behavior and predicting what we think mass, like the electorate sort of behavior is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. Looking more at women's roles in politics as we're talking, um, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will be the first female black Indian American vice president in our country's history. How do you see this affecting the role of women in politics professionally and engagement in general? Yeah, so um, Professor Campbell and I here at Notre Dame actually have a long uh, series of research on this question about women as role models. <clears throat> and what we have found in our research and what others have found is um, you know, they're most likely to have an impact when they're viable and visible and when they're the first people, first time a woman runs for a particular office. And so clearly, uh, Madam Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris fulfills all of those sort of qualifications, right? Um, and as you said, it's exciting because not only is she a woman, but she's a woman of color um, and, and represents, you know, several different heritages. Um I think it's going to matter. Um, uh, and um, I, <laughs> the, the sort of not helpful answer is that Professor Campbell and I are part of about four or five surveys that are going to be in the field right now um, trying to look at exactly that. Both, both all the women, you know, we got more women running. We had a lot more Republican women running this year. Um, and so what is the effect of that? And then can we see an effect for, for Harris? It's interesting how... When Clinton ran in 2008, she was really like, me being a woman's not the point. But since she ran in 16, you know, we've got Elizabeth Warren and her pinky promises. Even Kamala Harris in her acceptance speech on Saturday said, little girls, you can imagine anything, right? There's really this strong idea um, that, that, that if we change what politics looks like, if we make it not look like just something for men, that this will inspire, as you said, interest, uh, participation, and maybe eventually women running for political office. And I think we have reason to be hopeful about that. But uh, as a social scientist, I have to say that's an empirical question, and we're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> I think we do have reason to be hopeful, evidenced by everyone here for this podcast today, uh, to, you know, female leadership of ND Votes. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the results of that research. Going on to our next question, we had we opened up some questions on our social media to our followers, and one of the ones we received was a question of surrounding the uncertainty with following the election. 
and it was, do you think a delayed transition of power, or would a delayed transition of power be a historical first in our country? So somebody listening to this podcast is going to do a better Wikipedia search than me and (laughs) going to give a different answer. I am not aware of a period of a time in which um, the president elect did not become the president on sort of the prescribed day. Right. Um, And as you probably know, in the 19th century, we didn't actually get a new president till March. uh, And uh, and now, of course, we get a new president in January. That still, by the way, makes the U.S. pretty unusual uh, to go such a long period between an election result uh, and actually a change of of government. Um, And we're certainly hearing about that now. So. I think it would be incredibly unusual and I think very unlikely that when we come to inauguration day in January that Biden will not become president with all the powers and responsibilities that come with that. We've definitely seen delayed transitions, which is part of what we're seeing now. And so um, for those of us who lived through the 2000 election, for example, it was truly six weeks um, until the Florida results were were, uh, confirmed and we knew who was going to be the president-elect. We really just had... There was not an answer to that, despite the fact that Al Gore had conceded and then took back his concession and et cetera, et cetera. Um, What we're seeing this year is already historic in the sense that um, once a president-elect has been chosen, and it's, I think it's, I think it's fair to say empirically, it's nearly impossible, and by which I mean 0.00001% that that the election results are going to tell us anything other than Joe Biden um, has been elected president. Um, but what we're seeing on the part of the, the current administration is um, not wanting to sort of participate in that transition. Um, there's whole people whose full-time jobs it is to get, so sort of transfer all of the information and knowledge and understanding from one administration to another administration. You want that transfer to be, to be smooth. You don't want the president to show up and be like, how do the phones work? What's going on in you know this country, et cetera, right? And so... Um, getting security briefings, getting more secret service, you know, all that sort of stuff needs to happen really quickly. It hasn't happened yet. Um, I'm hopeful that we're going to see a move in that direction soon. It seems like the opposition is slowly crumbling. Um, And certainly by the time that the Electoral College meets in December. But every minute matters, especially we have, you know, the pandemic spiking. Like it's, you guys might be aware, it's a a pretty stressful time. So um, I for the for the sake of the country as a whole, everything we can do to sort of smooth that transition is is valuable. It seems this week there has been increasing calls from both sides, from both parties, to have that information accessible to President Elect um, Biden. So um, yeah, I mean, without saying that we make our own reality, I think um, if if all the Republican governors said. No, no, this is something went wrong here. And think of what that means. They have to say my own election administration was not good or something. You know, I mean, something happened here. And all the Republican senators, and there's been some movement like that, right, to stand up for President Trump. Um, Governor DeWine in in Ohio, um, Carl Carl Rove in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday. There's not unified Republican support. And so I I think this is going to change. Um, I would like to move on to a question more about kind of that stress you're talking about with everyone um, not knowing the results of the election for a few days, it turning into a week affair and now multiple weeks. Um, We wanted to talk uh, both to you, Adair, and Professor Wilbrecht, but um, 
how have your students and colleagues reacted to this election? And Adair, like, how do you think our campus community has reacted? Do you want to go first, Adair? Sure. And I'm going to actually, once I answer, I'm going to ask Rachel to answer mm -hmm. as well. But I kind of mentioned the mass movement from groups that typically aren't involved in elections, which has been really exciting to see. We had a lot of participation and interest from athletes on campus. I think like a huge percentage of them ended up registering and voting, which was really great to see and was a lot of fun to collaborate with them. We've also seen our ND Votes group grow immensely this semester with a ton of first years and also students from every class. So I think compared to when I joined ND Votes during midterm elections, we just tripled our efforts in size. And there's been a lot of engagement and hype in general from the student body from groups that aren't typically engaged, which has been really fun and exciting, especially for us at ND Votes. I don't know, Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just in, you know, this past year with both of us on the board, our interest from outside groups internally on campus and externally, we've had tons of different nonprofits reach out to us wanting to hear about our work, which is amazing. Um, just like we're getting noticed way more often. You know, Coach McGraw reached out to us this year, which was an awesome opportunity. Our task force has tripled in size. Um, there's just so much more interest and focus on civic engagement, which has been super exciting for us because obviously we've been dedicated to this for a long time. Um, but also on a more personal level, I've definitely seen um, people being more engaged that aren't the typical poli-sci major that's really interested in this sort of thing, or me, who's not poli-sci, but this is my passion project. Um, so just on a more like more personal level, I had a lot of friends reach out and ask, how do I register? How do I request my absentee? How do I see the results from the mock election? Small things like that, of you know, from people that I would never guess would you know, remotely care about things like that. So that's been really exciting. And post-election, talking with all my friends and seeing how many of them really got out the vote um, has been just very awesome. I think the days between the election and when we actually found out um, on Saturday were very stressful. I think campus was very much on edge all week. Um, I think everyone was just refreshing their computer. I remember walking through the library and seeing like the big map on everyone's screen and they're going through tabs. And I totally related to that. Like we were talking on our board meeting the other day and Madeline was saying she had to like set a timer for herself on how often she could check. <laughs> and I totally related to that. I had a test the next day and I was like, I can't, I can't even begin to start checking and then I was, you know, on it every five minutes. So it was definitely a pretty stressful environment, but I think people are more at ease with um, the results coming out. Also, our campus had a very big weekend with the, our win over Clemson. So I think people are a little bit distracted with that and <laughs> finals at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see um, kind of how people are able to process it once they go home and are having discussions with like their family and friends. When I uh, dropped off my daughter at school this morning, the head of school, we were joking. I said, you know, um, this is an amazing time to be a political scientist, right? If I didn't actually have preferences over the outcomes and care about the planet, um, this would just be great data. This would just be great stuff to look at. And so, um, you know, my social circle is full of all sorts of election nerds. These are who my friends are. This is what my what my text groups look like. Um, 
Uh, and, and of course, just the same sort of thing. In fact, we all joked on Sunday, all right, I'm not going to just finally close those tabs, like the six different sources I have open <laughs> to see what's happening and move on with my life. Um, I've been sort of excited in the social sciences in the last four years. Um, we're sometimes, you know, it's the Ivy Tower and we're not relating to people. But the truth is, scholars have really shifted their attention to to understand this political moment. Like, what does it mean that Donald Trump a- attacks the press? And what does it mean, mean that we're having all these challenges uh, to election outcomes, et cetera? Um, it's made us American historians like we're special, we're unique, we're nobody else is like us. So we just have to study ourselves, say, maybe we need to look at uh, other democracies where there's been um, uh, uh, democratic erosion, where there's been sort of challenges and uh populism and all these sorts of things. Um, and so in that sense, intellectually, it's incredibly exciting and interesting. Um, but the thing is, most of the people who get involved in political science also, you know, care deeply about uh, outcomes. They really believe that government is at fundamentally the way that we all collaborate for the better of everybody. Um, so definitely those same sort of levels of stress. And as you said, adding the Clemson game, adding the fact that we've had a whole stressful semester of, is my mask on? Am I in the right place? Right. It's just a lot. Um, and I, my hope for students, because it's my hope for myself is that after Thanksgiving, everyone can just like collapse for a couple of days, <laughs> um, and, and, and get some rest. Cause I, I certainly see it in my own students. It's just been a really stressful semester. Um, I think when you add that level of, I've got to remember my mask and what, you know, it's just a lot. It's just a lot. It is a lot. And I think this is the first presidential election the majority of Notre Dame students have voted in. Um, so I'm that's, sure that's true. Yeah. So that's, you know, I wasn't, I, I'm the oldest here and I wasn't able to vote in 2016. So it's definitely a new thing for us. I think caring so much about the outcome. I obviously watched it in 2016, but this year knowing that all of us voted was a really exciting layer. And that's actually really important, and it's one of the reasons why the work you guys do is so important, is, is voting is a habit, and, and getting so many more students so early in their lives. Like, this will, um, this will be important um, and will make those folks more likely to turn out uh, going forward. I'm very excited to receive our NSOLVE data in the spring, which will tell us, yeah, the, the numbers, the turnout, registration, actual voting, so... That'll be super fun to see, and we're hoping for big upticks um, since, what, the last data we have, I think, is from 2018. Yeah, hopefully. Um, we'll see how that goes, but it's specific to Notre Dame, so that should be really interesting data. Um, but I think that's all for us today. Thank you so much, Professor Wilbrecht, for joining us on this episode. It has been my pleasure, and let me say again, you, you, I just have so much respect and admiration for the work that Indie Votes does. I know you guys have so much going on and you're doing this on top of everything else. So thank you so much. Your fellow students owe you a lot. And, you know, the future owes you a lot because you're, you're the ones that are going to get set Notre Dame students on this path of civic engagement. So thank you. Thank you. Indie Votes would like to thank the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, the Constitutional Studies Minor, and Indie Student Media for their support in production of this podcast. As always, Indie Votes reminds you to register to vote and request your absentee ballot as soon as possible using the link on our website and or in our Instagram bio. Also, check out other voter education resources on the website. Your vote matters. Get political. <laughs>